Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. Well, Madison... We must confess to the listeners that we've spent the last half an hour trying to figure out why you sounded like you were shouting at me. Look, every single day, my life is just one long stream of audio issues, whether that is recorded or not. (laughs) (laughs) It's just never ending. Halfway through figuring out what the hell was wrong, and we think we figured it out, I'm sure po- I suppose if we haven't, that uh, someone will tell us. They'll be like, you guys suck. And we'll be like, I mean, we I know. hope so. <laughs> Fuck. But, but halfway through figuring that out, I was like, you know what? We'll just quit. I think that will be easier. <laughs> because I'm, my nerves are shot. I'm, we're just going to throw in the towel. It's been a good ride. We haven't even watched a damn rom-com this whole season. So No, this one this one is a rom-com. This I'm one skeptical. is skeptical. I'm skeptical, Madison. I'm skeptical, Stuart. I believe in us. This is going to be the one. I'm still skeptical, but I'm we'll get there eventually. So Chelsea, what what have you been doing this week? Is there anything new in your life? Is there anything significant, life-altering that's happened? Uh, I've learned a lot about wine. I'm helping one of my best friends with her wedding. And so this weekend, I went to a very large wine store. And I asked the people for help because I don't know a damn thing about wine. And let me tell you, there's some rift in the wine community. And I felt like I was getting free tea about wine. So my other friend got married like four and a half years ago and we loved the champagne at her wedding. We're like, what what was it? Because we want to try that one for this wedding. She tells us. So I look this up online. I find out where I can purchase it. I'm like, great, I'm going to go. I'm going to get some other recommendations from the people there uh, on similar products. And according to the internet, this particular sparkling wine used to have another adjective or type, I don't I don't another descriptor for the wine, so it was an asti spumanti. Oh. Neither of those words used to mean anything to me. They still don't mean a whole lot. I still don't understand that much. I'm not a sommelier. Uh, but you could be after this. <laughs> perhaps uh so i get there and i tell them what i want and then i ask for recommendations and the one the second bottle that they recommend so they gave me the first bottle which is what i asked for they give me a second bottle which is their next recommendation and now the the thing they recommended was an actual spumante and they were like yeah that one that you asked for it's now just an asti it used to be an asti spumante and uh, according to Google, that was the same thing. They just changed what they call it, but apparently that's not true. They've changed their recipe, maybe? They changed the process? I don't know. So I just felt like everyone was mad at this particular champagne maker 
for I mean technically it's sparkling wine because it's it's not actually champagne because that has to come from a very specific region in France and even uncultured people understand that I think but anyway this sparkling wine they were like no it's it's not as good as it used to be because it used to be a spumante and now it's just nasty and I don't know what any of those words mean but let me tell you uh we did pick the wine for the wedding or the sparkling wine for the wedding it's gonna be a a spumante so apparently that is better I liked the one that was just the Asti, but it's not my wedding. So I liked the one we picked, to be clear. But as of recording this, they are not married. But I think by the time this episode airs, they will be wed. Ideally. I, I think it happened. I'm pretty confident. So oh, good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> but uh, my joke was everything I know about wine, I learned from my friend's wedding. Uh, I went to, and then uh, we went back to the wine store the next day for regular white wine and also a red wine recommendation and i'd also like to point out i'm not a huge wine person like i enjoy an occasional glass of wine but not only do i not know a lot about wine i I don't really drink a lot of wine so it's been a real learning experience uh so madison if you ever are throwing some kind of party and you need to know about wine don't ask me but go to the large wine store and there are people there that can help you they have. They were great. Wow. We haven't told them what we're watching yet, but that does actually lead into my um, drink recommendation of the episode of what you should drink if you're inclined to drink an alcoholic beverage and watch this movie that you don't know what it is yet unless you wa- listen to uh, last episode all the way of to the end. Of course they listened to last week's episode all the way to the end. Why wouldn't they? Any good laughster knows that in order to keep on laughing, they need to understand what we're watching next week. It's true. It's true. But, you know, those darn rapscallions who just occasionally tune in, they may not know. Um, But I'm not going to tell them yet. They can wait in suspense, but they can know what we're drinking. And there are two options. I gave two options last time. I felt it was only right to keep that going. So the first option is a very, very like bone dry gin martini with a twist, which is essentially just gin with a twist of lemon. Is that good? I would assume so. I've never actually gotten up the guts to order one, but I'll let you know the next time I go out to a place that's nice enough to order that um, I'm going to and I'll keep you in the loop. But listeners, I need you to know that Madison is an absolute gin snob. I found this out recently because I had had a gin and tonic with a gin I'd never had before. I say as if I drink a lot and I really don't. But it was this orange infused gin and I sent her a photo of it and she's like, I don't fuck with that stuff. And I was like, well, what do you fuck with? I don't normally fuck with that stuff. And then I looked up all of the gin that she recommended and I was like, well, okay, this stuff looks, I had heard of one of them before. My, my friend who's getting married really likes the Empress gin. Uh-huh. So I'd heard of that one before, but I was under the impression that all good gin comes from England because that's where it comes from. So the fact that you sent me a Japanese gin, I was like, okay, apparently everything I know about gin has just gone out the window. It's gone across the Thames, <laughs> over over the continent, ended up on an island. 
squarely in, in the, the Pacific. Pacific. Yeah. So I don't know anything about gin, apparently. No, you definitely know. You're not incorrect in the assumption that, like, the best gin most of the time comes from England or its surrounding areas. I mean, the I did look up the Japanese gin, and there's yuzu in it, and I really like yuzu, so I would be very interested to try it at some point. But also, I'm very broke. That's kind of expensive, so. Yeah, no, I am... I'm such a snob. The gin that I usually drink, and to be fair, I don't drink like super often and no one else around me drinks gin. And so I'm usually just drinking it by myself. So one bottle can last quite a while, Uh, but usually it's around $40. Do you Uh, have a good cheaper, not necessarily super cheap, but like What is a gin you find acceptable at a lower price tag for those folks that maybe aren't huge drinkers and they're just getting into the gin cocktails? Should we just like cut this and we'll come back when I'm in a liquor store? (laughs) And here today on aisle six, (laughs) you'll find a very good but affordable gin. And notice I'm English because... That's where the good gin comes from. It is, yes. Okay. We are not claiming that these are good accents. They are just accents that we are performing for you tonight. I've actually never had a good accent in my life. I don't know where that went. I don't know either. We'll stop offending our friends across the pond. Uh, okay, so one, it would imply that I've tried a bunch of different gins. I really can only tell you my favorites and not their respective costs. I can tell you the ones that I don't like, which are probably the cheaper options. I think you're just a really bougie lady. I Here's the thing you should know about me. I live for luxury. <laughs> which you would not know um, with the state of my living quarters right now, although that's just because I... I need to clean. I get very stressed when people ask me to pick places to go to dinner or where to get our nails done or really anything, not just because I have decision paralysis, which I do, (laughs) but also because I am convinced that I will choose incorrectly, partially because I'm riddled with anxiety but also because I'm just convinced that everyone is more luxurious than I am and everyone is a lot snobbier about things than I am. Mm. I I am a snob. I'm a snob about pizza. I have a lot of opinions about pizza. Same. And I've noticed recently that I might be a little bit of a snob about coffee uh, after purchasing Alberto, who is my espresso machine. Oh. But mostly I just think that I don't like Keurig coffee, but objectively it's terrible. So I really don't even think that's a snobbish thing to say. I just think it's an accurate thing to say. So I've never had a good cup of Keurig coffee. It's just like it's like the LaCroix of coffee. Yeah. It's just yeah. essence of coffee in hot water. I think it also always tastes burnt 
to me. It always tastes burnt. But yeah, I guess most Keurig coffee that I've had definitely does taste like making love in a canoe. <laughs> Uncomfortable. Uh, fucking close to water. Oh Lord! Uh, but no, let me let me actually just talk some shit about Lacroix right now since you brought it up. Though I don't understand the appeal of drinking something that tastes like TV static with someone down the hall whispering the name of a fruit. I don't get it, and I never will, and no one can ever convince me. People have tried; they've been like, "You just haven't had the right flavor." What flavor, Deborah? And that's why she drinks the most expensive gin. And that's why I drink the most expensive gin. Please sponsor us, most expensive gin. (laughs) (laughs) I'll drink whatever you send me and advertise it. I'll make cocktails. Madison is happy to be played in booze and it would not be the first time. No, it would not be the first time. I've watched people's children for booze that sounds bad i've watched people's dogs for booze that somehow sounds worse (laughs) look if you pay me the cash then even if i really want the bottle of tequila or the bottle of gin i'm not gonna buy it i'm gonna spend it on sensible things like gas or rent or my car payment but if you just give me the booze then i don't have to make that decision That's a responsibility loophole right there. Exactly. It is. Um, But a responsible thing to do with wine would be to get our second option for what to drink while watching this movie. And that is red wine from a box. Great. Great. Yep. Which is a little. So you've got classy and you've got trashy. Mm hmm. And we've got a little, a little sprinkle, a little smooch of a reference to one of the lines in the movie. So you're saying 17 minutes into recording, we're finally going to talk about the movie. I mean, I guess so. That's the whole point, right? I just think you're procrastinating because you know this isn't a rom-com. No, it is a rom-com. And I have a very well thought out 17 point plan to uh, prove it to you. Well, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. I have no money. But uh, today we watched Monster-in-Law, which features J-Lo, Michael Varton, which please correct me if I'm wrong, Chelsea, and I may be, but is Michael Varton actually the first repeat love interest that we've come across so far? I think he might be. I do not think we've had... Another repeat love interest. Yeah, I I don't think that we have, which is really weird that he comes up twice because he has not done that much in terms of acting, especially in this genre. I mean, it was just, I'm convinced that rom-coms are just a jumping off point for almost every actor. We've talked about this before. It's either rom-coms or it's horror. But yeah, so you have Jennifer Lopez as Charlie or Charlotte. Dr. Kevin Fields, uh, played by Michael Varton, and Viola Fields, uh, Dr. Fields' mother, uh, played by beloved Jane Fonda. 
And then um, I have to mention two of the incredible sidekicks in this movie. And that's exactly what they were. They were sidekicks. But the first is Wanda Sykes playing Viola Field or uh, Jane Fonda's assistant. And then also Adam Scott as Jennifer Lopez's character's friend and neighbor. Incredible additions to this film. We have this star-studded cast for a movie directed by... Robert Lukedic, which, if you didn't know, directed Legally Blonde. No reaction? I, I said okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> fine, I was expecting a little bit more. Legally Blonde! <laughs> That's fine. Um, he also directed two episodes of the TV series Schmigadoon and directed mm. two episodes of Jane the Virgin. Oh, I know, which is one of the best television shows ever created. And you cannot change my mind. Not that you would want to. Look, Rogelio de la Vega may not pop in peach, but Jane Fonda <laughs> looks like a goddamn queen. I feel like this movie can be summed up pretty easily. Kevin and Charlotte meet. They develop a relationship really quickly. Jane Fonda gets fired from her longtime role as a television host and interviewer, like a talk show interviewer, sort of, I guess, equivalent to like a Barbara Walters type or a Diane Sawyer's sort of vibe. And she finds out she's being replaced with someone much younger. And during her final interview has a complete mental breakdown. She's institutionalized. And upon her uh, re-entering the world outside of the clinic that she went to, her son decides to propose to his girlfriend of a few months. And she's like, I'm going to have a breakdown. And then she decides that instead of the route that she planned to take to try to convince her son that this wasn't a good idea, she decides to try to convince JLo to break everything off because she transforms herself into the insufferable mother-in-law. Uh, acts absolutely batshit and... Violates all kinds of personal space, uh, but J-Lo catches on to what she's doing with the help of her friends and decides to turn the tables. Jane Fonda tries to, I don't know, uh, kill J-Lo <laughs> by putting nuts in something and she's gravely allergic to them the day before her wedding, but everything ends up fine and they come to a heart to heart and the wedding goes on happily ever after. So Chelsea, I I don't know if you liked this movie. One, I know that you have doubts if it's even a rom-com, which are valid, but incorrect. And I'll explain why later. I don't know that they're incorrect. We're going to have words later. Okay. I feel like this one was maybe a bit more entertaining, definitely agitating at some points. I don't think that this one could be more boring to you than The Wedding Date. That is an accurate statement. Look, is this my new favorite movie? No. Would I watch it again of my own choice? No, I'm not going to pick this movie. If someone said to me, Chelsea, let's watch Monster-in-Law, I'd say, okay. Because as much as I don't, I'm not in love with the plot itself, first off, Jane Fonda and Wanda Sykes are a dynamic duo I would pay all of the money I don't have to go see. 
I think they're both brilliant. They're funny. I I, I was so entertained by the two of them. Yes. I didn't really care about J-Lo and the guy whose name I don't even know that apparently is our first repeat love interest, but will we ever see him again? Probably not. Um, I've never seen this man in anything. No. Do you do you know what you've seen him in before? Do you remember? The uh, the one I hated. Uh, yep. With Drew Barrymore. Never, <laughs> never been, been kissed. kissed. Never been kissed. Uh, I was worried you were going to start having flashbacks. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, I think this movie is pretty okay. I think, yeah, Jane Fonda and Wanda Sykes are very entertaining. And ultimately, I found myself very intrigued with a lot of social and relational dynamics mm-hmm. that are happening in this film because film doesn't just appear out of nowhere. There's pretty much no such thing as a unique idea. We're seeing a hyperbolic representation of a very real relationship dynamic, both between Jane Fonda and her son and also Jane Fonda and her soon-to-be Mm daughter-in-law. And the whole idea of a monster-in-law, this person who, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, is going to be part of your life if they're a part of your spouse's life then you kind of have to get along with them or at least hope that your relationship with this person is civil. And the idea that that person could be absolutely horrid, not just to you, but trying to get in between you and your partner Mm -hmm. is terrifying. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I think this film is a really good or a really intriguing case study in a lot of different... (laughs) So from that perspective, I was highly entertained, but I'm, I don't think that the film itself, the plot itself is necessarily super worthwhile, but I do think that Jane Fonda is pretty entertaining and as is Wanda Sykes. So there's something there, but it's not earth shattering, I guess. And also we've had a few stinkers this season so far. So (laughs) I feel like this is pretty middle of the road, but I think it's elevated just because of the cast and- I agree. So that actually, your analysis of it brings me to the first point that I really wanted to talk about. The idea of parental enmeshment and emotional incest. Because like you said, this is a hyperbolic version of what a lot of people unfortunately face when in the process of marrying a significant other or even just being in a committed relationship with somebody of having the issue where it's usually the mom is so entrenched in the relationship that the two people are fostering when it is not their relationship. It is an avenue to continue the existing relationship with your child And it's an avenue to create a new relationship with their partner. And it's this weird dynamic of, I'm I'm just going to say moms, because that's usually what you see uh, just with the social dynamics that are created and how everything is set up. But you have the issue of the mother seeing, because usually it's a mother-son dynamic. Hold on. I actually disagree with you. You do. Oh, please, please. 
No, so you're saying it's mothers, but I feel like we see this, a similar dynamic pop up between fathers and daughters, daughters. in particular. And yeah. I'm. it's not the same, but there is kind of this antagonistic pattern that I've seen, at least in media. I'm not going to say that I've seen this in my own life or in the lives of friends or family members. But what I will say is that in media, you see the antagonistic relationship between a father whose daughter is involved, it's typically the daughter, is involved in a relationship with some man. And most of the time, there's not really any issue. Mm -hmm. There's no reason on the outset that this man should be upset that his daughter is in a relationship with this guy. Mm -hmm. And then we have situations like in this movie where a mother is has an antagonistic relationship with her son's partner, the woman. And honestly, this feels like some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy at the other end of all the shite that Freud was spouting all those years ago <laughs> yeah. about Oedipus. And I don't I don't think there is any actual precedent to believe that this is how these relationships will go. But I do think there is a social precedent, both in the media that we consume. Honestly, I think the media we consume contributes to a lot of fear and anxiety that we have about these types of relationships. Mm -hmm. And then I think that fear and anxiety contributes to how we think we should act in these situations. And so I do wonder whether or not we almost create a problem that might not otherwise exist. I also yeah. think this is interesting when we think about stories like Cinderella, where you have a stepdaughter and a stepmother. And it honestly, all of it feels very linked to patriarchy. <laughs> and it feels to me as if the power in a relationship. So <clears throat> speaking specifically between men and women. Mm hmm. The reason in a Cinderella situation, for example, that the stepmother will be antagonistic to Cinderella is because the power in this dynamic is her relationship to her deceased husband, who is the father of Cinderella. You would think that Cinderella would be inheriting all of this, but because she is an adult in the situation, by diminishing the position that her stepdaughter holds, she holds on to the power of her dead husband. And so it, in a lot of ways, benefits her to behave that way, right? Mm -hmm. Because in order for her to maintain control. Of course, you can argue that if she was nice and nurturing to Cinderella, then perhaps Cinderella wouldn't have, you know, shown her the door when she no longer needed a mother figure. But then when we transfer over to this monster-in-law situation, uh, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I heard my grandmother say something along the lines of, a daughter is a daughter always for life. A son is a son until he gets a wife. And I think that this asinine rhyme <laughs> really speaks to the power that a woman holds in her son's life. So if power comes in, a, in patriarchy, if power comes from men, then if your husband is emotionally withholding you're seeking that validation and emotional tie to your son. And now your son is getting married and there's another woman. And so I feel like there's a 
encroachment on that connection. And that connection is what's giving you power. And I think over time, that power has become kind of muddled because we don't have the same sort of systems in place as we once did. So your son isn't like controlling your wealth anymore where he might have in the past, specifically in an instance where your husband would have been dead. So he can't control the finances. So your son now controls them. So Mm -hmm. it's not like that anymore. But I do think that this is in some way contributes to this relationship because we don't seem to, women don't seem to have this fear about their daughters. It's only their sons. My evaluation of all of this is there is a similar dynamic with fathers and daughters. However, that has to do more with a threat to masculinity. AKA power in the patriarchy. Yeah. Typically, historically, women have been seen more like property, but also men posit themselves as protectors of women. So when dads are sitting at the table cleaning a shotgun, when the guy comes over to pick the daughter up for a date, that is a show of, can you protect her the way I can? And also, if you inflict any harm, I will once again be the protector. It's that establish of power and dominance of you can't rival me. With women and sons in particular, it's definitely, it definitely used to be the issue of the estates would pass to him. So I have to remain endeared to him that way I'm taken care of. But now it's definitely an issue of perhaps, you know, I've been able to maintain this control over my son's life, which I register as unconditional love. And now someone else is willing to give him a same amount, similar amount, even if it's a different type of love. They're willing to give him that, which means he will no longer need it from me. Where do I pour all that into? Because my husband's no longer paying attention to me in the same way. Maybe they never did, or maybe it's just not the same. Because you also have those people who like to spout the bullshit of, you'll never know real love until you've had a child, until you've had a child, which like, thanks, I guess. <laughs> I'll stay unloved. But it's that issue of, Where do I put this love? I'm being challenged. And now I'm no longer the woman that he goes to when he is in need of a woman. And now I have no male figure to pour all of my adoration into. I think we're pointing at the same thing. I just don't think I articulated myself well enough before because I got off on a tangent. But with respect to what I meant by power, another power that you have is male validation. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't get that from your husband, whether because he's dead, emotionally withholding, or not present for some other reason, your next place that you would get it is from a a son. Mm -hmm. And now that the attentions of your son are redirected to a different woman in this case, there is a, and quickly, There is a real threat of you losing that male validation that under patriarchy makes you valuable. Mm -hmm. And I'm, so what I'm getting at is I think that in some ways, not in some ways, I know that this contributes to women being 
pitted against one another. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, and I wish I knew who, their names. Uh, I was listening to the Just Between Us podcast with Gabe Dunn and Allison Raskin, and they had on guests who have a podcast about The Bachelor. And something that they were saying was in shows like that, a man is literally the prize. Yeah. Which reinforces a lot of these very negative ideas we have around romance, around heteronormative patriarchy, around women's role in society, women's value in society, I guess. And so in a situation in like in Monster-in-Law, you we see two women both grappling for a certain amount of power, which sounds very negative when I put it that way. But what I mean by that is that these women, these women to a certain extent have been told that only one of them can be the victor. Yeah. And because of that, it is it takes them longer to get to the point at the end of the film where they can exist together in a more collaborative way as a purposeful unit, i.e. the mm-hmm. family. Because yeah. we live in a world that has told both of these women that they need to be number one in this man's life. Mm-hmm. And not for nothing, but this guy that has apparently been in two movies now... <laughs> It's so infuriating to watch him be so obtuse about everything that is happening. I know. And basically reiterating this fact that his life has to be easy (laughs) to a certain extent. Well, I mean, okay. So the first true confrontation that we see between Jane Fonda's character and J-Lo's character is when they're meeting for lunch And Jane Fonda begins her plan of acting like the crazy, overbearing mother-in-law. And she brings out this giant, ugly wedding planning book. And she just keeps repeating the word peach. And she's talking about how she's planned everything. And they're going to do this. And and she's found this. And she knows these caterers. And this is going to be the absolute best. And she has everything planned out to a T. And J-Lo is trying to be polite throughout. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Well. I, I, I promise that I have this handled and then she fake faints and is like oh and then he comes in when they're at the hospital and says that she had an anxiety attack which can mimic the feelings of a heart attack and that she's going to be fine she just needs to avoid stress and then goes well I mean is it true that she was you guys were like talking about the wedding and she was talking about helping plan it and da 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 and you yelled at her and she tries to explain like she was trying to railroad me on everything yes I got upset I don't think that I would say that I yelled at her but I did tell her no and he made her apologize to her no ma'am Absolutely not. Ew. Well, this really speaks to a very warped idea about what is polite and what isn't. Yeah. Like the difference between being polite and being kind, I guess. But somehow disagreeing with your mother is a slight or rude rather than just a difference of opinion. 
Well, not only that, it's the issue of she came at her with, I've planned out your entire wedding to specifications that she knew she would hate, even if that wasn't necessarily what was being said at the time. She's planned out her to-be daughter-in-law's whole wedding. It's not her wedding. It's the same thing that I get so, we talked about last time, how everybody has opinions about weddings, and I 1 million percent do. And I was talking about it with my sister the other day. And I said, I do not understand. I understand parents putting in input in their children's weddings when asked, when the advice is solicited, but giving the unsolicited advice, telling them what they need to do, increasing the guest list by like 40 people because they looked over it and you forgot your third grade teacher and your 14th related, you know, removed cousin. I can't stand that. And my sister goes, well, who's paying for the wedding? That doesn't matter. And I'll tell you why. If the condition is that as a parent, you're paying for their wedding to have control over it, you have gone wrong. If you're paying for something, you should be doing that because you want to, not because you want to have control over a day that is supposed to be special to your child, who you, I assume, love like a parent hopefully should. So the idea that she comes with all of this, J-Lo pushes back and says, um, no. And that he gets upset. Uh, just baffling. Baffling to me. Yeah. That's why he's so obtuse about everything. One, he doesn't want to see it. But two, he thinks that his mother is an angel and she's a crazy bitch. Also, not for nothing, but he proposed to his girlfriend of only a few months so at maximum four five months yeah that's pretty soon to get engaged considering they'd only just moved in together yeah yeah they were still unpacking by the time that he popped a question yeah so not only is it soon in this relationship but your mother has just gotten back from the hospital and even if she had been away on vacation and not seeking psychiatric help this is the first time your mother has met your significant other yeah doesn't seem like the best time to spring this on her no no absolutely not as much as jane fonda is her character is terrible because she's pointedly trying to destroy a relationship that her son has That makes him so happy he wants to stay in it the rest of his life. Yeah. But he's also God. And not only that, he's just so forgettable in general. I have no idea. I know he's a doctor. A doctor of what? I don't think we ever find out. Again, he's just another... This is one thing that I do dislike about rom-coms. As much as I love rom-coms. And this is a rom-com and I'll explain later. The one thing that I really hate about rom-coms is how so many of the male protagonists, the male love interests, can just be replaced with a cardboard cutout. They're so flat and so underdeveloped that you could literally just have someone like speaking the lines behind a cardboard cutout of someone who's conventionally attractive according to when it was made. And it'd be the same thing. 
I think the reason why they do that, though, now I'm going to go off on a tangent about this, but I think the reason why they make these really forgettable male characters is because the audience for rom-coms is traditionally in the vein of rom-coms that are most often greenlit, most often have a more developed budget or marketing. They are typically made about and for cishet women to enjoy a romance and it is easy for the woman to put herself in the position of a spunky female character because they're all spunky or quirky in some way even though they're remarkably conventional 99% of the time and then they put them across the blandest yet conventionally attractive man that they can find Because you can superimpose yourself over a character and the man is essentially a blank slate. So you can also impose whatever you want on him and it could be plausible within the parameters of the movie. Now that being said, he he is great for that role. He is truly great for someone that you can just superimpose whoever you want over him. And... While also being the worst mama's boy. To jump to J-Lo's character, number one, this is not a rom-com, but... I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that our protagonist with the quirky job mm-hmm. was given an actual more unconventional employment mm-hmm. in that she's just working a bunch of different jobs. Yeah. But she has dreams of being an artist. So instead of her just being an artist, they gave her a very grounded story. So she's a dog walker, she's a caterer, she's a little league coach, she's a yoga instructor. She's a receptionist. She's a receptionist. Loved it. How refreshing. How refreshing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I As much as I didn't like the wedding date, I will give her... She worked in customer service at an airline. That, to me, that was pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second thing about JLo's character. I'm a little peeved that up until she discovers that Jane Fonda is basically trying to ruin her relationship. She's portrayed as perfect. Yeah. And I don't like that because I've noticed this a lot. Unfortunately, it would seem that to a wide audience, the only women worth rooting for, the only women worth liking are women that are not flawed. Yeah. She doesn't need to have a criminal record or have slept with a bunch of people or whatever, any of the things that Jane Fonda's character is having Wanda Sykes check for. But we we don't see anything that makes her human. In fact, the only thing that's sort of portrayed negatively is in that first conversation she's having with Adam Scott and her other best friend in which they're basically making fun of her for wanting the perfect fairy tale man. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that she's holding out for this perfect fairy tale man. Because to me, the only way that your friends should be budding in about that is if you're passing over a person that is a good person yeah. because you think there's something better out there. But she's sitting there with no prospects. So it seems to me kind of just rude for her friends to be making fun of her. But other than that, there's nothing that is portrayed as negative about her. And we don't yeah. get even a hint of mischief until she starts punching back at Jane Fonda but at that point it's framed that you're supposed to like her and oh this poor innocent woman is being just 
given such a hard time by this high powered <laughs> uh monster in law lady. Yeah. And so it's fine that she's going to want to punch back. But I feel like the story would have been richer if maybe she had a few flaws. But I suppose that would have required more depth in everyone. Honestly, the only person I feel like that has any hint of depth is Jane Fonda. Yeah. And I will say too, and it bothered me so, so much. The dress scene where... Jane Fonda tells them that she's having a barbecue to celebrate their engagement. And it turns out that it's like black tie formal. They show up as if they're going to a barbecue. She's wearing a cute little sundress and he's wearing, you know, what men wear to barbecues. I wasn't paying attention. And then she says, oh, I've laid out clothes for you. I have a dress for you. And she picked a dress that's obviously too small. And at one point, JLo says, I have two asses. Bitch, where? That bugged me so much. There were a couple points where, like, there were comments about JLo's figure or weight. When she had, like, the most desired figure according to social standards and beauty standards then and today. Well, then maybe it was more heroin chic, I guess, which everyone's like, oh, heroin chic. You do realize that you're saying that you can only attain that (laughs) you're literally on drugs um but this movie came out in 2005 so we were probably still in pretty heavy in the midst of like heroin chic at that point so JLo would be seen as quote-unquote bigger or heavier but jesus fucking christ she was what a size six maybe and she's over here. I have two asses. That that dress might fit over like my left boob. <laughs> I just it just bugged me so much. And that's one thing that I'm glad. Well, in more contempt, more modern, more recent rom coms, it's referenced like pointed out less. It's still there with the actresses that they choose to feature in those films, the actresses that they choose to feature for comedic relief, that sort of thing. But yeah, it just really said the quiet part out loud really hard. And I hated it. Yeah, I think a lot of films around this time, that's just how, you know, it's interesting, right? The older women that I come in contact with very casually so somebody that I bump into at the grocery store not somebody that I know I'm in the same aisle and they're looking for something will make comments about oh I know that these are absolute junk but oh they taste so good you know this is like my great aunt and my grandmother when we still when we go out to lunch I might be bad and order French fries. Like, yeah, you're basically carpet bombing a country with those French fries. So terrible. It's a fucking potato. The language we use, I don't think people really understand, first of all, that it in it all boils down to marketing. Yeah. We use certain language to describe foods, both negatively and positively, so that you buy one product and not this other. Yeah. A lot of health food words, like a superfood. There's no such thing as a fucking superfood. It's the same thing how we think that fruit juices are okay, but like Cokes are bad. The amount of sugar in both of them is about the same. 
It's just marketing. It's just how the FDA wants to classify it too. So like, yeah, I, <laughs> it's so frustrating when you hear these things because I, I don't even know what to say to people. It, they, everybody leans over conspiratorially and they'll say like, well, the diet starts tomorrow. <laughs> or those those shitty um, like general store style signs where it's like, my diets all start on the same day tomorrow. Yeah. So I don't know. I, this is very steeped in that toxic diet culture that we're still grappling with now. But I think the mid-2000s, early 2010s were – they were rough for yeah. – I saw something the other day that someone was like, I just don't understand how women in like the 60s and 70s were so thin and able to work and able to maintain a house and take care of 47 children. And I'm like, bitch, they were literally on speed. Yeah, exactly. They were pocket popping Dexies like they, you know, couldn't get enough. Like they were smarties. So... Like, if we could all go back on speed, maybe we'd be there. We just have much shorter lives because our hearts would explode by the time that we're 55. Yeah. But yeah, and it's actually really interesting, too, because Jane Fonda very recently came out with a statement talking about her, she framed it as an addiction, um, but her eating disorder that she had for many, many years, she was bulimic. And it's like, yeah, she looks fucking great in movies. I mean, fuck Barbarella, which not that I would ever recommend anyone taking any kind of mind altering substances. But if you choose to legally in a state where you can watch that movie after you do. But that figure, it's it's attainable if you punish your body. And I just, oh. It just this those scenes just really got under my skin. Like when JLo ordered a burger and fries and she's like, aren't you afraid of fitting in your wedding dress? And then there was a wonderful line. I was honestly shocked for JLo to say in response to Jane Fonda making a comment about her order that she's going to make the dress to fit her. Mm-hmm. She's not going to alter herself to fit into a dress. Yes. Because the fact that this is 2005 and not yesterday... <laughs> Yeah, because this is this is something that I hear now, but I I don't know that I've ever heard this in a movie before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in an when a movie that's representing in part an industry that thrives on perfection. Mm-hmm. I I when I was going wedding dress shopping with my friend, uh, I overheard one of the one of the women that works in the bridal boutique talking to a different bride and she literally said to this bride oh i can because they were asking what size dress should be ordered yeah and she was like well i can tell you're the type of bride that you know you'll probably lose weight before the wedding what do you mean she's the type of bride that's going to lose weight before the wedding what why is that even a category i would leave (laughs) And not for nothing, but I learned uh, wedding dress shopping recently with my friend that the sizing for bridal dresses is wild. So if you're usually like a size eight, we'll say, 
you're probably going to be a size 12 or 14 in bridal dresses. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. that makes no sense to me. Also, women's sizing doesn't make any sense. Why don't we just use measurements the way that men's clothing do? Because then I would know if something would actually fit. Don't tell me that it's a size 12. Tell me that it's a whatever inch waist or Mm -hmm. that's more accurate. I don't, and then I, I said this once and I don't know who I was talking to. And the person was like, well, you know, women are very sensitive. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't think it's because women are sensitive. I think we've built an industry in which we make women sensitive to these things. Because oh, if, yeah. if, a, if a woman has to go up a dress size, that's still equally as traumatic than if actually it's more traumatic because if you're just using waist, like sizing like inches or whatever and your waist is x amount of inches that didn't change but then this dressmaker for whatever reason their their sizing runs small and so now you have to go up a dress size and you feel like you're going insane because you're like I don't all my other clothes still fit so I don't think I gained weight like why and mm-hmm. we live in a world where gaining weight is literally the worst thing you could possibly do Oh yeah, no. It's the well, it's the it's the running joke of like in Devil Wears Prada, where Emily Blunt's character says she's like three stomach flus away from her goal weight. Yeah, yeah. No, and I I was just thinking about it. You know, like if you're a size sixteen normally, and then you're going wedding dress shopping, and you end up having to get a size twenty two. What what do women who are normally a size twenty two? What are their options? I don't think you're allowed to get married, actually. No, that's fair. Okay. Okay. So we'll just, yeah, we'll just kibosh that whole idea because we can't, we can't conceptualize just using a little bit more fabric. That's fine. Nope. Okay. Formal wear, especially with women's sizing is just, I have to order a bridesmaid dress soon and I like break out into full body sweats and start hyperventilating at the thought of it. Like I was talking to my mom and I was like, I'm, I know how to measure myself. I know how to use a tape measure. Um, But I'm going to get your help. You are going to measure me and then I'm going to measure me to make sure that I'm not fucking anything up. So when I order this $200 dress that I know that I'm getting the right size, I am so fucking stressed about it. You don't even know. And it's because I'm just having flashbacks to my senior prom where I'm in the I'm in the prom section of either Macy's or Dillard's and I'm looking at all of these adorable dresses. They're so cute, but I'm a really busty chick and I always have been. So I'm in the dressing room at Macy's and I found this dress that I really like and I just have to keep pulling sizes that are further up to try to fit my top half and once I find one that will actually zip up all the way, the rest of it fits me like a paper bag. And I ended up asking, getting one of my mom's friends to make me a skirt. And then I found like a cheap sort of corset top online. And that's what I wore to my prom. Well, my sister really likes, to- is it Tim Gunn from Project Runway? Yes. He is a 
really big advocate for plus sizing in that a lot of times people don't understand plus sizing. It's not just making a garment bigger because your body, like where things get bigger happens in different places. So for you as a very chest forward lady, (laughs) that was a weird way to phrase that, but (laughs) nope, we're keeping it. (laughs) You need room there, but you don't necessarily need room on your ass. You said before that you don't have an ass. Nope. But there might be somebody else who has no chest and has a bigger ass. And all of this really points to the fact that fast fashion and the uh, industrialization of textiles and things like that uh, got us away from making our own clothes, which is what people Mm -hmm. used to do. That's why when you look at old pictures and people looked fabulous, it's not because they were fabulous. It's because their clothes were made to fit them. Yeah, they were tailored. They were tailored. Um, I one of uh, on TikTok, there's somebody that works on Amazon Prime's Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and she works in I think the costuming department. And she was like, everyone is always like, oh my gosh, she just has the best figure. Oh my gosh, and yes, that actress is a beautiful woman, and she does fit a crap ton of beauty standards. But the point that this costumer made was that everything on that show has been tailor-made to fit her perfectly she's Mm -hmm. not wearing something off a rack that sort of fits her which is what most of us are wearing every day so if you want to look incredible you just have to be really wealthy and that's all around because if you want to eat the right foods that are going to nourish your body uh if you want a personal trainer if you want any kind of surgeries, uh, if you want your clothes to fit right. All of those things, it just points to wealth. If you want the opportunity to spend time out in the sun. Ooh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Literally everything. It all comes back to money. You're not ugly, you're poor. It's really funny that you say that because today I sent a couple. Have you ever seen the videos on TikTok of the guy who stitches like the ridiculously extravagant stuff? And he goes, on today of I'm rich, you're poor. We have, you know, this fancy hot chocolate station where you're pouring packets of fancy hot chocolate into these cute little containers that probably cost like five, ten dollars each because they're all glass. And he's like, but you can't even afford regular hot chocolate. Why? Because you're poor. And I sent a video to a couple people today of me flipping through my new planner because I just came to the conclusion that I can't be trusted with just an electronic calendar anymore. I miss shit and it's not good. Um, So I got this really nice physical planner from Target and it was like $25, which is way more than I would ever normally spend on a planner. But to quote Stefan, it has everything because it's like each day is its own page. It has a section for to do's. It has a timeline breakdown, like hourly breakdown of your day. It has a little section that says like top three to do's for your most important shit. It has a notes column. Like it's really built out calendar. Um, I'm trying to reorganize my life. So it's necessary, but I was flipping through it and I was like, my calendar is broken down like this, and my calendar has stickers in the front. You can't afford that. Why? Because you're poor. <laughs> 
So that's, you know what, this, this podcast is brought to you by the phrase, you're not ugly, you're just poor. We'll have that on a t-shirt, throw pillows. <laughs> Cross stitch for your bathroom to hang above your mirror. What an affirmation. Just look at yourself in the eye in the mirror and go, you're not ugly. You're just poor. You're just and poor. whose fault is that? The your government. employer for not paying oh. you more. Actually, it's capitalism. That's yeah. who's at fault. It's always an ism. Everything, every problem <laughs> can be traced back to an ism or a phobia. Exactly. <laughs> we were watching Crazy Rich Asians this weekend with my friend and her fiance because I was helping with wedding prep and we took a break. Yeah. And it's the very first scene where Michelle Yeoh is being denied uh, access to this fancy hotel in London back in the 90s. And I whist- leaned over and whispered to him, it's, it's an ism. <laughs> So Chelsea, I don't, I don't actually have, I have the only like main fix that I have is to remove the weird weight references to this movie. I almost want to keep the burger scene just because the comeback was so good and it helps yeah. establish Jane Fonda as like the bitchy monster-in-law. Mm-hmm. So I almost want to keep that, but everything else we're just going to kibosh. Okay, great. And maybe just have the dress be like really ugly and horrendous instead of ill-fitting. I think that would have worked, yes. Do you have any fixes? Because I have to explain to you how this is a rom-com. I have to justify it. I genuinely have no fixes for this movie. I, like I said before, I think it's it's fine. It's a run-of-the-mill, not a rom-com movie. I don't think it's a rom-com, Madison. So please let us walk the viewers, the uninitiated, through our criteria on how we determine whether something is or is not, in this case, a rom-com. So, Chelsea, we have three criteria. The first is, do they date? Did we laugh is the second. And then the third is, is love in the driver's seat? So, is love compelling this story forward? And specifically, romantic love. Yes. And I will justify that. Okay. I think we can agree that they do date. Uh-huh. Yeah. No. They they date. Yes. Okay. Did we laugh? Because of Wanda Sykes and Jane Fonda, yes. Yes, correct. Okay, now, the part of is love, is romantic love in the driver's seat? And I say yes. Clearly, we have it established in the beginning. They move in together. She agrees to marry him and everything like that. She then puts up with and then subsequently ends up fighting back against Jane Fonda's character. J-Lo's character fights Jane Fonda's character because she loves him so much that she's willing to endure this. She's willing to put up with this because it means something to him that his mother and his fiance get along. Now, I see you shaking your head. Now, wait. Because that's her motivation for her role in the story, not the motivation of the plot itself. No, it is. Because the argument, the coming apart that happens and then is resolved is J-Lo decides right before the end that she is going to call off the wedding. 
not because she doesn't love him enough, but because she doesn't feel like love is enough. Love isn't enough to carry a relationship, which is true. You can love somebody with your whole heart, but circumstances do not allow the relationship to continue or to flourish. And then parental love at that point allows the romantic love to succeed. Because up until this point, however misguided that love is, you could still categorize it as type of love. Um, it's undermined the romantic. You just have two different battling forms of love, but the driving force of why she puts up with it, why everything happens is because JLo is trying to pursue and move forward with her romantic love for Michael Varton's character Jane Fonda's maternal love, however misguided, is there as the antagonist. I don't know, Madison. And had it not had it not been for JLo's romantic love, she would have just given up as soon as she met resistance from Jane Fonda. I I guess I just don't see that as romance propelling the plot forward. To me, this story is blending families, which is what a wedding does. And a rivalry that sprouts out of that to either thwart the blending of those families or try to get that effort to succeed. But the romantic love is the compelling movement of blending of the families. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm not convinced that this is... A, I am not convinced that romance is the driving force of this movie. What's the driving force? The driving force of this movie is the, it's the rivalry between, it's the antagonistic relationship between Jane Fonda and J-Lo. Yeah, but I feel like if you removed Jane Fonda and J-Lo as like the figures representing the rivalry... What you're really getting down to is two different forms of love butting heads. I don't know, Madison. I don't know. I feel this feels like a stretch to me. I don't know. I, I agree. Okay, here's the thing. I understand that in the context of this entire film is set up like a rom-com. The whole beginning of this film is a meet cute and they get together. But yeah. after they get together, the conflict. Uh-huh is about blending families. The conflict is about two women who have different relationships, different types of relationships to the same man. And I, one of those women, yes, has a romantic relationship with this man. The other woman has a maternal relationship to him. But the thing that gets them down the aisle in the end is a recognition of repetitive family cycles jane fonda's character is mirroring the relationship the antagonistic relationship that she had with her mother-in-law right and it is seeing that pointed out to her when j-lo decides that she's going to walk away that snaps her out of it 
And so to me, this movie is all about the women. It has very little to do with this man. That's what I was about to ask. Okay. Do you feel like if Michael Varton's character was more involved, if he was more physically present, because he's, he's geographically not present in this film for a, most of the film. He's off at some medical conference. So he's completely removed from the situation. Do you think that had he been more involved in it, perhaps seen more of the confrontation, maybe the conflict is less so Jane Fonda realizing that she's doing the same exact thing that her mother-in-law did and is rather, you know, it's if it's less breaking cycles and more so like the conflict would be him walking in when they're having that showdown rather than the mother-in-law, Jane Fonda's mother-in-law. If he had walked in after hearing part of that through the door and confronted his mother, would you consider and then have her be like, I'm sorry, I overstepped. This wasn't my place. Marry the woman that you love. Would you feel like that would fall more along the lines of a rom-com? Perhaps because in that instance, both parties in the romantic relationship are acting agents in their own story. Yeah. But he's completely absent, as you said. Mm-hmm. For most of the most of the conflict, he's he's completely absent. And so it's really difficult for me to say that this is a story about romance because the two first of all, I get that he's a nobody, but this is j-lo jane fonda they have top billing because and it's not because it's not just because this guy is not as well known it's because those are the main characters Mm. okay so that's where i have i understand what you're saying i get that it's all in i'm willing to say that it's all in the name of romance Mm -hmm. perhaps maybe But tangibly, this is not a story about romance. This is a story about a mother and daughter-in-law. That's what the story is about. The story is about these women's relationship to each other in the context of a blending of families. So I have a really hard time saying that romance is in the driver's seat. Romance is the impetus for this conflict, but it is not what is continuing to move it forward. Can we agree on a half point? (laughs) (sighs) Fine. It can have a half point. I just can't fathom getting this many movies into season two and not having watched a single rom-com. Madison, that seems like a you problem. You've picked most of the movies or at least approved the ones you didn't pick. Yeah. You greenlit the listener recommendations. Yeah, I did. So, and okay, and again, I want to reiterate, I think what I said in the last episode is that I wouldn't classify this as a rom-com because romance isn't driving the plot. I would say that we can give it an honorary mention for feels like a rom-com in certain aspects. Okay. The same way that I would give the wedding date feels like a rom-com, though I would argue that that feels more like a rom-com to me than this movie. That's fair. The next one that we're going to (laughs) watch that I've decided on now because I can't stand the idea 
of watching another fucking movie in season two. That's not a rom-com. Chelsea, next time we're going to watch 2021's The Hating Game featuring Lucy Hale. Okay. We're going to watch a fucking rom-com. If it's the last thing we do. God damn it. Oh my god. Madison just can't stomach the idea of the network canceling us. No, I'm terrified. They're going to be like, we were sold on this as a show about rom-coms and there is not jack shit to do about rom-coms this season. Well, Chelsea, um, maybe the listeners can recommend some actual rom-coms. Up to this point, they really haven't. So if you guys could really chip in, I'd really... (laughs) Um, But no, for real, if you would like us to watch an actual rom-com rather than what we've been watching this season so far, please send us an email. Please send us an email. At loveitforscreening at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Instagram. Also love it for screening. Where every Thursday there is a poll having to do with the most recent episode we've watched. Featuring very polarizing questions. Such as all we want to see is Kate Blanchett in a suit. 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 You know, it's really interesting because no one picked Kate Blanchett in a suit, but they did. It was actually fairly split among Kate Blanchett in a suit, Kate Blanchett in a suit, and Kate Blanchett in a suit. Yeah, very true. So, <laughs> it's the best poll yet, in my opinion. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had I had people who I know don't listen to the podcast or at least I assume they don't listen to the podcast when I posted that on my Instagram story liked it like oh I love that um so they go far and wide these polls really truly uh Madison we didn't actually give a watchability score for this (gasps) movie that is not a rom-com Oh my god, I completely forgot. I got so tied up in trying to get that half point so I could consider it a quasi-rom-com. Um, well, Chelsea, what the fuck is a watchability score? A watchability score is a score we give to films every week on a scale from 1 to 5, inspired by Zillow's walkability score, which gives ratings to locations... Real, real estate locations based on how close they are to various shopping plazas, amenities, restaurants, things like that. So coming in at number one, we have Stranded in the Desert. Number two is Backroads Barbecue. Number three is Strip Mall in Suburbia. Number four is Four Blocks from a Transit Stop. And number five, the best coffee in town is right downstairs. Madison I would give this a three. As I've said before, I think this is a fine movie. Watchability-wise, I think if you watched it for the first time, you probably wouldn't be too mad because Jane Fonda, Wanda Sykes, truly incredible. We did not talk about Wanda as much as I would have liked in this episode. I think we got very invested in this film's 
case study of relationships and then also whether or not it was a rom-com. But Wanda Sykes is a funny, funny person. And oh, honestly, incredible. I was in, in agreement with Ruby, her character. I was on her side the whole time. Oh, yeah. She was the only sane character in this whole film. Other than potentially Remy, who is played by um, Ben Wyatt. Yep. Yeah. Uh, who had, okay, who had an amazing shirt. I don't know if you saw it, um, but it said your next sugar daddy across it. And I want that shirt so fucking bad. Maybe it'll just have to be some of our merch. <laughs> just because I want it. I want a shirt that says your next sugar daddy. Why? Because you're poor. <laughs> and so is he. So Yes, he is. He's always eating JLo's food. He's basically the Kramer of this movie, if you know Seinfeld. Madison, what would you rate this movie? I would say a 3.5. It's only bumped up because of Wanda Sykes and Jane Fonda. I felt like a 3 wasn't sufficient for them. I feel like if it was one or the other, like if it was just Jane Fonda or just Wanda Sykes, it could be settled really easily at a three, but the combination was so dynamic that I had to give it the extra half point. So we're at a strip mall in suburbia, but we do have a working coupon. Oh, it works so well. You're going to get 50% off of sweatpants at Old Navy. They're not going to make your ass look good, but fuck, are they comfortable? Well, this has been a real time. Thank you all for joining us. Once again, we are Love at First Screening here every Wednesday talking about all the rom-coms you love, love to hate, and everything in between. Maybe next time we'll actually watch a (laughs) rom-com. But until next time, 